Acts chapter 2, I'm going to read a sprinkling of the text. Verse 1 says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. This is 120 people, we're told in chapter 1. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven, as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And then there appeared to them divided tongues, as of fire, uh, one sat on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them the utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem in those days devout men from every nation under heaven. These people had gathered for the feast days, and uh, they see these people speaking in tongues, and they were confused because they heard every man speaking in his language, and they were amazed and marveled and said to one another, look, uh, are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? How is it we hear them in our own language where we were born? And then we get the people group in the rest of the verses. Verse 12 says they were amazed and perplexed. And they said they must be full of new wine. They must be drunk, though it's 9 in the morning. Peter stands up in verse 14 with the 11, raised his voice and said to them, and he begins to preach. He, he begins to put in context what has just happened. He goes back to Joel in the Old Testament. And in verse 22, he begins to preach about Jesus Christ, and he draws them to repentance. Verse 38, repent everyone, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise isn't just to the 120, or it's to your children, those who are far off, as many as the Lord God shall call. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted that generation. Verse 42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all, as anyone had need, continuing daily, not just on Sunday. With one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And watch this. The Lord, who had just baptized them in the Spirit, was adding daily those who were being saved. And I'm going to take a guess, it's a very educated guess, that this chapter has been preached on, talked about, written about more than any other text in the New Testament. And we never want to elevate one portion of God's word over another, but the reason why I think this has been preached on more than any other text is this is the birth of the church. This is the ecclesia. This is the people that God will call out. This is the new community that Jesus said that he would build and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. This is the unstoppable force of salvation, blessing, healing, and joy. Remember that we're for all peoples that would come to all nations. This 120 group of ragtag believers filled with the Holy Spirit would turn the world upside down in their lifetime. They would alter Judaism. They would alter the heel of Rome that was oppressing them. They would turn the cross, which was a symbol of injustice and death, into the greatest icon and symbol the world has ever seen for blessing and healing. A 120 ragtag group of people whose leader has passed off the scene. Now, this is what Jesus had told them. This was what he had asked them to do in chapter 1, verse 4. 
being assembled together with them. Remember, he had seen them for 40 days after the resurrection. He commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. The command was to go. Before they go, they had to wait. Which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized you with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you now restore the kingdom of Israel? This is still on their mind. And he said to them, it's not for you to know times nor seasons, epics of history. The Father's put that in his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, first in Jerusalem, this is the strategy, then Judea, Samaria, and the end of the earth. Now, my grammar, my English is not very good. It's not my fa favorite subject. It's not really my fault. I had a nun in eighth grade. Her name was Grump. I don't remember her real name, but she was Grump. She was legendary. You heard about her from the time you were in sixth grade. She was our English teacher. She was senile. She was 87 years old. She was bent over. You know, God bless her soul, right? Uh, uh, you were told before you got in eighth grade that she gave true-false tests. And if you called her over and said, Sister, I don't understand what you wrote here, she would look down and there was a whole answer key. You just memorize TFTTF, you know, and write everything down. Uh, learned nothing that year. I don't know how to outline or diagram sentences. I struggle with English and grammar. You probably picked that up in my preaching, right? It's all Grump's fault. It's not my fault, okay? Missed a whole year. But I did learn one thing. You never start a sentence with but or and, right? There was, a, there was a, we watched Sunday mor Saturday morning cartoons and there was a commercial called Conjunction Junction, what's your function, right? And it was two uh, railroad cars put together, right? That's what conjunctions do. So you never start a sentence with butter and. Now, bloggers do it today. Today you break all the rules. It's kind of cool, right? So here, Jesus says, but you shall receive power from on high. What's he saying? He's putting two things together. He said, when it comes to epics of history, forget about it. Stop analyzing it. Stop analyzing the day you live in. Jesus already said the gates of hell will not prevail against us. Cancel culture, woke culture, all this stuff. The gates of hell aren't going to prevail against us. We've seen worse than this. Jesus said, look, there's going to be persecution. There's going to be revival. You know, kingdoms will rise and fall. There'll be wars and rumors of wars. But one thing you can take to the bank, that every era of history, the Holy Spirit will be the driver of this brand new entity, this, this amazing community called the church. Acts chapter 2 is full of majesty and wonder and beauty. This is the birth of the church. This is what we're a part of. This is our history. This is a 2,000-year journey of God's people traveling together and infiltrating the world and testimonies and salvation and kingdoms have fallen. And it all begins here with the breath of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus wanted them to know that unless the Lord builds the house, they who build it labor in vain. If we don't have the Lord's power, the Lord's strength, this is one of the creedal values of Calvary Chapel. You know, it's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord. For 28 years, we've been listening to the whispers of the spirit. What is the expression of God in our community, in Delaware, Chester County, the Delaware Valley, is what we've tried to follow all these years. 59 times the Holy Spirit mentioned in Acts he would be the driver of the church. Jesus would fill human beings with the power of the Spirit.
Now, this didn't come out of nowhere. Acts chapter 2, we already read it, said the day of Pentecost had fully come. That tells us that the Levitical feasts we find in Leviticus 23 were to be fulfilled. Leviticus 23, go back and look at it. God said, these are my feasts. There are seven. And now we know that looking back, they would have a fulfillment. So there were three feasts in the spring, right? Unleavened bread, where they remember that they made bread without yeast. They made it in haste because God was delivering them out of Egypt. So they looked at their deliverance, right? Jesus became unleavened for you and me, right? He who knew no sin became sin, right? The incarnation, he was born sinless. He was unleavened for us. Uh, think of the object lessons here, right? Passover's next. And what's the centerpiece of the Passover celebration? The lamb, right? So they would slay lambs. They would take the blood. Uh, the first Passover, they put it over the lentils of the doors, which typified the, Christ, the cross where Christ would die, right? Paul said Christ was our Passover lamb, the sinless substitute. John said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then there was the feast of first fruits. And that was always the day after the first Sabbath after Passover. So this, this didn't happen quite often, but it happened in the weekend that changed the world. Passover and unleavened bread were on Friday, first fruits on Sunday. All those feasts were fulfilled. Jesus, the first fruits of all those who would rise from the dead. You know, one day you're going to rise from the dead. It's in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in the church, the community of the saints, the resurrection of the dead. Jesus was the prototype. He did it first. We're all going behind him. 1 Corinthians 15, a moment, a twinkling of an eye, will all be changed, right? So all those feasts were fulfilled in Christ. What about Pentecost? Pentecost was a feast that happened 50 days later after the Passover. Uh, this is way back in Leviticus. And you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, that's first fruits, seven Sabbaths, so 49 days, count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. So in first fruits, they would wave a sheaf, right? That was a sign that, you know, they were about to plant the harvest. 50 days later, they would bring two loaves in, which were the first of the harvest, believing the entire summer harvest would come in. How did Jesus fulfill this feast? This feast was fulfilled in the day that the Holy Spirit was poured out. It was a sign that the greatest ingathering of souls was about to happen. Now, look, they had no idea it would be 2,000 years. The age of grace begins, the times of refreshing of the Gentiles, the days of the Gentiles, the clock started. Now, here's what's fascinating. The only one of these feasts where there's a countdown clock is Pentecost. The minute Passover's over, you start the countdown clock of 50 days, kind of like our Advent a little bit, and you're anticipating the first feast of the fall, the Feast of Trumpets. Those fall feasts have not been fulfilled. The Feast of Trumpets will be fulfilled in 1 Thessalonians with the shout of an archangel, the trumpet of God, what we call the rapture, the return of Christ for his church. So where are we on God's calendar? 
We're in the harvest. We're in the long summer months of the getting gathering. Remember Jesus told the disciples, look around, look at the wheat harvest. It's ripe. The laborers are few. There's plenty of harvest in any age. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is out and about compelling men to come in. Joel said that this activity would go on until the, you know, moon would turn to blood, the sun would be dark, until we see the things of the time of the end. This age of grace would go on. The doors of the ark are open. We are living in that age right now. This is the day the Lord had made, and this was the birth of the church. I want to draw out a quick few points, just because there's a lot of confusion around this. I want to emphasize this. Uh, this is kind of extra biblical, but I think it's true. There were 70 elders that ruled Israel. We call them the Sanhedrin by Jesus' day. Uh, the law actually, can't prove it, the law, we believe, was given on Pentecost. We believe it was 50 days after the Passover that Moses went up and received the tablets of stone. Can't prove it, but we think it's close. Uh, we're pretty sure that Pentecost was on a Sunday, right? They began meeting on Sunday as Christians, and we think the day of Pentecost uh, was on this day. But the one thing we're pretty sure about is God was reversing Babel here. Remember in Genesis chapter 10, the world had one speech, and God said, oh my gosh, there's nothing that's going to stop them. They're building towers in the heavens. They're going to they're destroy each other, and God confused their language. This is the reversal of that. Uh, in Genesis chapter 10, you see the table of nations. Guess how many nations are there? Seventy. So 70 elders represented 70 nations. Here, when they come out into the crowd, we see the nations of the world listed. Here's what I believe. I believe with no buildings, no airplanes, no technology, they fulfilled the Great Commission the hour the church was birthed. They literally went out, spoke in tongues, and representatives of every nation under heaven heard them. The gospel literally went in proxy to all the world. I think it was a foreshadowing of, I got this. This is a foreshadowing that there's nothing God couldn't do. There's nothing he can't do by his power. And there's nothing that can stop him. Uh, second takeaway is this was a one-time event. Please understand this. Um, they didn't say, hey, let's come back next Sunday. Same upper room, same back channel. We'll see tongues of fire. The wind will blow through. We'll make it through another week. We'll know that God's still on the throne. Like the parting of the Red Sea, this was a one-time event. Now, speaking in tongues, the gift of the Spirit, we'll see it at Cornelius' house, Acts chapter 10. Uh, I, I think what Peter preached, it would go all the way down through history. But this idea of the rushing wind, the, the pneuma, the ruach, same, same word we see in Genesis, the Spirit of God breathing life in the creation. The church was birthed by the Spirit. One time event here. Uh, this is very important. In the 10 days be, between them seeing Jesus for the last time, until the Spirit was poured out, was not the work of man. Sometimes people will preach, for 10 days they tarried long and prayed and were on their knees and the Spirit fell and if we do that, revival will come. Listen, I'm all for tarry and prayer and revival, but man didn't bring this about. In the fullness of time, God brought forth his son. Jesus was born in the fullness of time. This was on God's calendar. 
And this day was on God's calendar regardless of what they were doing. And if you want my opinion, I think they were frightened. They were frightened by what the authorities would do. Jesus was gone. I think there was anticipation. They were frightened. I think all those things uh, were kind of intermixed. The, the final takeaway is this. It says they were all filled with the Spirit. There was a, you know, certainly there was function. There were leaders, you know, the apostles' doctrine. They were all filled. Everybody. This is why Peter wrote, we are little stones that God is building this wonderful house. The church isn't a building, the church is people, and God is building, and we're all spirit-filled. So if someone asks you, do you go to a spirit-filled church, your answer is yes. In fact, every church is spirit-filled. If there are believers in a church, they are filled with the spirit. The day you gave your life to Christ, you were filled and baptized into the church. Last point I want to make on this. The first work of the spirit, guys, was to push them out. Push them out into the streets. Why? Because they wanted to be the 120 club. That's the way we are. This is great. We got filled with the spirit, tongues of fire. We don't want to grow. Let's keep this to ourselves. So for years, people would say to me, man, I hope the church doesn't grow. I hope the church stays small. And uh, whenever I hear that, I wonder if people know the heart of God, the mind of God, um, when I hear that, and, and please, I, I understand what people are saying, but and don't take me wrong. When people say, I want this to stay the way it is, I think they have a very low view of church, not a high view. Because when someone says, let's keep this the way it is, what they're saying is, I have a very low view of what this does for me. And what I want this to do for me is I want to have a nice little club. When I come around, I know everybody, and it all works for me. Holy Spirit said, I don't want any of that. Holy Spirit wants to blow, wants to move. Why? Because if we thought like that at 60, you wouldn't have got in. God doesn't want anybody to perish. Don't you all want more people here, not less? And here's the beautiful thing. We're going to see later that smaller is not better and larger is not better, right? When our church was small, we had to get larger. So when we were small, we went on mission trips with bigger churches. It was great. It was fabulous. It was great for us to go away, six or seven of us, with 20 others and feel part of a team. Then when we got larger, we had to get smaller. We built our whole extension here with the table cafe, the, the upstairs chapel, and all our rooms to get into smaller groups. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 said, they worshiped God in homes. They went to the temple, which was larger. We need both, guys. We can join serving groups, small groups. Yes, life change happens in small platoons. And there are plenty of small platoons to go around. But I'm saying this, the Holy Spirit moves. And he's always seeking those who should be saved. One of the great, great uh, stories of Calvary Chapel, if you read Chuck Smith's book, Harvest, is how many guys would come, sit around, and then go out and start other churches. There's over 1,200 Calvaries now. And so the heart of God is always to go. Now, they come into the crowd and watch. Verse 6, the people are confused. Verse 12, they're amazed. They're perplexed. And then he now says they're drunk. There is a tendency 
when we see what I would call the oratory gifts, like prophesying or speaking in tongues and healing and all, to think that that is the work of the Holy Spirit, but then preaching is the work of man. It's just the way it works out, right? So you come down to our day, there's this big fight. Are we a word-centered church or are we a powered-centered church? This new community was a word and power church. The working of the Spirit in these people produced disequilibrium at best. Peter gets up, preaches. Guys, nobody's drunk. Joel wrote about this. Joel said this. And Peter begins to preach. And what's the result? 3,000 people were saved. I don't think 3,000 people would have been saved if all those people did was speak in tongues. And this is why for 28 years, though I believe in the gifts of the Spirit, love the gifts of the Spirit, I think we need guardrails for it. I believe that the preaching of the Word of God and God's Word coming into the human heart is the only catalyst for life change. That's why we teach through books of the Bible. That's why we try and unleash every verse at a time. Because the Word of God can get into a hard heart and meld it and change a life. God anoints his word, and Peter stands up and says, Joel said this, and the people were converted. What do you do with 3,000 new believers? You ever think of that? Uh, you disciple them, go into all the nations and disciple them, right? The greatest thing that could have happen to any church is dump like 100 new believers in here. You dump 100 new believers in here, we'd stop all our infighting. Right? We'd be too busy. Too busy growing people up. Too busy teaching people. Too busy serving people. Warren Wearsby said this years ago. Christians are like manure. Keep us together, we stink. Spread us out, we're amazing. This is what the Holy Spirit wants to do. It's wonderful when we gather. It's like my grown kids. Wonderful when we gather. Wonderful when they go. <laughs> Acts 2.42. Let's go through it. Every church believes this. This is what the Holy Spirit does. Acts chapter 2.42 doesn't say, this is how you form the government of the church. It doesn't even say, this is how you conduct a service. Nowhere in the New Testament say how you conduct a service. The work of the Holy Spirit has nothing to do with buildings or anything that man thinks is centric. The apostles' doctrine and teaching. The word of God was paramount. Uh, there was leadership here. They, they, they understood the apostles had certain functions. Uh, and there was order and there was giftings. Fellowship, the word koinonia, right? These people liked each other. Isn't that fascinating? They created a space for doing life, right? They did it daily. How about breaking bread and prayers, right? The Lord's Supper was paramount, communion. Um, they prayed. They did it in homes. They did it in large group. Verse 43 says, Sinden's wonders were done. They believed God was a big God. They believed in the miraculous. Verse 44, there was a component of generosity. Many Jews were ostracized from their families. The boot of Rome was on them. So they got everything together, right? Now, this wasn't recommended for all time. This was for a season. But for this time, they, they banded together. 
no government programs, so that no one had any need. Verse 6, small group, large group. How about this? Gratitude. Gratitude. They were thanking God. It's amazing. Often overlooked. Thanking God for all he had done. Uh, Praising God. I think there was an element of worship and singing. And they were growing. Healthy things grow, people. Healthy things grow. God's a God of growth. The greatest metaphor in the Bible is seed. Seed goes in the ground, it grows. Those little kids I see in Journeyland, every time I go down there, they're going to be teenagers one day. They're going to grow. They're going to flourish. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. This is a fully functioning biblical community. It looks different in every expression. I can't stand when people say, how come you don't do it the way these people do it? We do it the way God does it with this expression of people. Chuck Smith used to say Baskin-Robbins has 31 flavors. Some people like liturgy. Some people like high church, low church. This is the, our expression or the Holy Spirit's expression through this body of believers. You know what my greatest takeaway is? I was kind of pouring over this, meditating on it. My greatest takeaway is the title of my message. Together, we're better. Now, I didn't say we're better together. I chose it wisely. When we're together, we're better. We're better. I will never forget, it was nine months before I ever walked into a home fellowship, and the leader of that home fellowship still was in our church. For nine months, I would drive to church, drive home, and that's all I knew. My life was altered when I walked into a home group. When I saw people living their lives and discussing the gospel and and living in community, it was forever changed. And it kind of breaks down this idea that you and I battle every day that we doesn't equal me, right? Because everywhere you go, it's about me, right? Uh, They searched one time, they did a study uh, of Americans. What one symbol of Americans would portray how we look to the rest of the world? Guess what they came up with? The Marlboro Man. The cowboy on the horse, he's the lone ranger, he's the captain of his own ship, he pulled himself up by his bootstraps. That's the farthest thing from what the church is meant to be. And I could tell stories for a month of Sunday of the people I've met, the homes I've been into, the people that have been in my home, the people that have been married. We could go on and on. Why? Because together we're better. And it's not about me, it's about we. And the new community is a place where you can love and be loved and you can know and be known and you can give and receive. It's God's body, right? This brand new entity. Not a building, it's a body. Sometimes I hear people say, well, I just want to go deeper. Or can you disciple me? And my answer is yes, I'll disciple you. Meet me at Armour tonight. We'll set up 120 chairs. It'll be the greatest discipling you've ever had. Because that's what we've done in our whole run. We've served together. We've sweated together. We've lived life together. When the church functions, as it does in Acts chapter 2, it's irresistible. It's irresistible. It's even irresistible to the people that don't believe. I can't tell you how many people that come here and say, well, I don't believe. I just, there's nothing like this. You won't believe how many kids come to youth group who don't believe 
because there's nothing like this in the world. There's nothing like this. Wayne Cordiero wrote a book called The Irresistible Church. We'll go through this really quickly, and then we'll be done. This is the marks of an irresistible church. This is the church God births, God forms, God leads. Uh, if this isn't your church, bring it back to your church. If you go somewhere else, make sure this is going on. An irresistible church is where you grow spiritually. You grow spiritually. Again, um, you trust the teaching of the word of God. Um, you feel like you grow. I'm mentioning Chuck Smith a lot today. I don't know why. But uh, Chuck said this about Sunday mornings. He said, Sunday morning is not a seminary class. Though you are expounding the text, do not lose sight of the fact that you may have new believers, non-Christians, and a host of other people to minister to. Take it easy. Make sure that expounding does not go over the heads of those gathered. Remember the adage, teach scripture simply and keep Christ at the center. Though you have taken great care in studying the passage, you must remember Sunday morning is not a time to show off your intellectual prowess, but to clearly and simply deliver God's word to the people. I heard a seasoned minister say when I was in my 20s, you need milk for those who are new. You need a little bit of meat, not a filet mignon, maybe two ounces for those who are older saints. But everybody needs manna. Everybody needs manna. Everybody needs a fresh word from God for the day. You need to go to a place like that. You need a place where you can grow. Um, second thing that makes a church irresistible is you witness a strong sense of mission. Somebody put a target on the wall. Uh, whether the target's good or bad, at least it's on the wall. We're going to reach this many people, or we're going to go here, or we're going to feed people, whatever we're going to do. Please, somebody put a target on the wall. We're the greatest collection of people with the power of the Holy Spirit. How could we not have dreams and goals? In these churches, you see fruit. You see baptisms and testimonies, and marriages are healed. New leaders are raised up. Third mark of an irresistible church is you long to go to this church every week. Long to go. If you miss a Sunday, you miss a lot. Uh, it's also a church uh, that you want to invest in for the long haul. Anybody ever church up before? It's brutal, right? Someone said it's like taking a bath with your socks on. It just feels weird. Everything looks weird. But then after a while, this is it. Found it. And you invest for the long haul, right? Nobody wants to change the dentist, hairstylist, right? No one wants to change churches. It's a place you feel like inviting others to come and see church. Oh, you got to come and see our church. Number six, you relax at this church knowing it's a model of growth, not perfection. In other words, there's authenticity there. Uh, we're going to make mistakes. We're going to get mad at each other. But at the end of the day, we're in it for all the right reasons. There's authenticity. And finally, you're delightfully challenged at this church. Um, I used to leave church like with this thing. I couldn't explain it. And then I read Luke 24 with the two on the road to Emmaus. Jesus talked to them and their heart burned within them. I think when you're in a church that you know is your church, you get like spiritual heartburn like, yes, God's speaking to me here. 
This is the place I need to be. Guys, this was the work of the first century church. It's the work of every church through every era. Charles Spurgeon said, I know nothing more saddening to attend a prayer meeting where the devotion is forced and the fervor laborious, where brethren puff and strain like engines with a load behind them too heavy to drag. It's painful to detect an evident design to gear up for excitement, wind up the people to a proper pitch when the addressees are adapted to foster hot-headedness and the prayers to beget superstition. God's true saints cannot but feel that to gain the graces of the Holy Spirit by fleshly vehemence is sad work. They retire from such a meeting and they say, how different it is from the occasions when God's Spirit has been really at work in us. Then, like a ship with her sails filled with a fair wind, floating majestically along without tugging and straining, the church, born onward with the breath of the divine spirit, with a full tide of heaven's grace, speeds on her glorious way. If thy presence go not with me, carry us not up hence, was the request of Moses, and I think we may rather deprecate that a desire a revival if God's presence be not in it. Lord, let us stay as we are, crying and groaning to see better days, rather than permit us to be puffed up with the notion of revival without thine own power. There are days we muddle through. There are seasons we muddle through. We chop wood. And then there are grand seasons. These are the seasons of life. These are the time to be born, the time to die. Ecclesiastes 3. We live in an age where everybody wants a pep rally. We want the Red Sea to part every week. Tongues of fire every week. God's in the middle of it all. The work of the Spirit. 2015, we crafted a 2020 vision. An innovate school, Christian school, an expansion campus somewhere in the Ardmore area, new global and local missions partners, intern program staff. And when we crafted that, we said, Lord, but if you have other ideas, change it all. By God's grace, we accomplished all of it. And then we sat down and said, okay, it's 2020. Let's craft another five-year vision. And then God had other ideas called a pandemic. When it's all said and done, the pandemic's one of the greatest things that's ever happened to this church. And I say that loosely because so many people have died and lost the people they love. I'm not glad the pandemic came, but once it's come, it's really shown us who we are. As individuals, as people, it showed us how much we fear death and are tied to earth, how much we believe in the church, etc. I wrote an article that God surprised us. Pandemic gave us a live stream, four new staff, youngest staff we've ever had. Campus in Ardmore, a doubling of our Christian school. God thinned out our ranks, he, he, he subtracted, he added. New friends, new people. You know what the pandemic taught me? I already knew it. The church is essential. It's essential not only for Christians, but it's essential for non-Christians. You know why? Yeah. You know why? You know how glad I am there was a church when I wasn't a Christian? Because that's how I was reached. 
Somebody that went to a church took me somewhere where I could grow and flourish. The world doesn't know they need this. They need it more than they think. They need it desperately. And you and I need it because together we're better. It's not about me. It's about we. The church is essential. And all through the pandemic, we had these quarantine families and our staff, and, and, and we never stopped meeting. And hopefully you never stopped meeting. Hopefully you figured that out. We feel like now that the pandemic's over, we have a tailwind coming. Uh, we're starting to flesh out where we think we're going. We want to be more family-centric. We want to build a gym. We want to start sports ministries because we think evangelism, um, that's a great indoor. I feel like we need a younger voice here. Uh, I'll be 59, November 24th. Um, so I think we need a younger voice. I think the sky's the limit for our school. Uh, we're still waiting to see what God will do in Ardmore. Some of the things that have been around for a long time, like Sizzling Summer and Calvary Campus, we're still excited about. But all the while, we're in the stage of, God, would you, would you do it again? Would you breathe new life? into this ministry? Would you give new wine? Would you give us new wineskins? There are so many possibilities. The last time I checked, I'll say it one more time, the harvest is not the problem. It's the laborers. It's the laborers. How many people are willing to get out into God's vineyard and go into the highways and byways and compel them to come in? That's the heart of God. Church is easy after that. It's all gravy.